Hollywood actors were Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Yeah. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Better shake your booties for black girl nerds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host along with Ryan. In this two-part episode, we are proud to present to you two incredible artists that are doing remarkable things in their respective industries. Our first guest that's up is Rodney Barnes. Rodney Barnes has pretty much done it all. He has worked on everything from Adult Swim's The Boondocks, Everybody Hates Chris, Hulu's Wu-Tang, An American Saga, and currently HBO's Winning Time. But that's not all. We are actually talking to him about the work in the comic book space or the graphic novel space, just to be very specific. He is working on and actually has currently published Blackula, Return of the King. And that's what we're talking about on this episode. He's also worked on other graphic novels and comics such as Philadelphia and Star Wars The Mandalorian. And that segment is hosted by yours truly and Ryan. In our second segment, we welcome actor William Jackson Harper. He's known in several different projects from comedies such as The Good Place to dramas such as Underground Railroad and currently on the comedy mystery series The Resort. Well, there's this big Marvel film that he's currently starring in called Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and he stars as the character Quaz. So in our second segment, I speak to him about playing that role and what it's like to officially be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this two-part episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Today, I'm Ryan Bennett, and I'm your co-host because Jamie is joining me, and we're talking comics. Jamie, how you doing? I love we can talk comics together. Oh, I'm doing great. I, I'm very excited. Very excited I for know. this show. Listen, guys, I just got to say Philadelphia, right? You know the name associated with that, right? But you know, not only that, he's an award-winning writer, producer, comic book creator. It's the return of the king and Blackula, you better take notes. And also Blackula, if you're listening, I want that smoke. I'm just, I'm just going to put that out there. But I'm talking about Mr. Rodney Burns. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. So, Rodney, I'm so excited to have you back on, you know, BG and anything, because I was talking to you on IG Live. But we were talking about Philadelphia, and I got to bring that up to start here. Detective James could be on a television show. You got to tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, we've been, um, I have to finish writing the pilot. I've been so busy writing so many other things and I haven't had an opportunity to finish, but um, hopefully I'll get it done in the next couple of weeks and see if we can make a Philadelphia TV show. We'll see what happens. All right. Now. I'm excited about that. I can't wait. Like, can you envision the visuals on a TV show? Oh, that's going to be, that's going to be insane. I still can't get that cover of volume one out of my head. That's cra- It's crazy. <laughs> Indeed. And, and also you've got currently, which is Really, the heart and soul of what we're going to be talking about on this episode is Blackula, which I remember Blackula back in the day. It's actually one of my mom's favorite horror movies. Um, so the the film is definitely for um, 
uh, folks of a certain generation. <laughs> but I love <laughs> the fact that you have brought it back uh, for the new generation. And I wanted to start with the intro to the book because you mentioned in the introduction that Elena Mayo, who's the president of Orion Pictures, helped you cut through the red tape of getting this produced. So can you elaborate on what her role was in the creation of this book with you? Yeah, I was, uh, I met, well, we had known each other for a while, but we worked together on a monster movie for um, Outlier Society, Michael B. Jordan's company when she was running it. And uh, it was a screenplay that I wrote. And somehow along the way, we started talking about things that I wanted to do. And I told her about my love, my affinity for Blackula. And I didn't know at the time she was going to be moving on to uh, Orion. And um, she did. And as I was tracking down the rights, which was sort of a tricky thing, especially when you're dealing with, you know, older things, because there's so many other legal things connected to it. Uh, I reached out to her and asked her for her advice. And she said, not only will I give you advice, I'll actually help you cut through some of the problematic things. And she went right to the right people and you know, eliminated a lot of the um, the obstacles. And I was able to make it happen. That's amazing. I, I love I love it. And I'm a big fan of her. So that's great to see that she was involved in it. I Another thing about the book that was really compelling for me was the dialogue in this. It felt very Victorian. And uh, I really liked the phrase, your existence is mired in the benign toiling that is life. <laughs> I, I, I loved that. I wanted to eat that up. So were there any novels or films that you were influenced by when you were writing this? Uh, there was a there was a bigger idea. Uh, one of my problems, it's funny, when I first saw the movie, I was a, like a little kid. And I haven't been a little kid for a long time. And um, one of the problems I had with the film, not back then, but as I revisited it over the years, was it was so much black exploitation and camp associated with it that um, I felt like William Marshall, the late great William Marshall, who played Prince Mama Waldi, a.k.a. Blackula, deserved more. Like, And a lot of those black exploitation actors of the time did the best they could with what they were given and really elevated the material in a lot of instances. And being a fan of the Universal Monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, Werewolf, um, I felt like William Marshall had every bit of the acting chops that Bella Lugosi did when he played Dracula. And so one of my goals was to sort of elevate the idea of Prince Bamawaldi um, to that level, that status. Because if you ever listen to William Marshall, even when he came back uh, to uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse later on in his career and on Star Trek and a couple of other things, he always had this eloquence to him. He always had this grace. And I was like, I want to I want to keep that thing going. And I think a lot of times when we recreate some of these iconic characters from a period, they sort of take on, they lose some of that along the way and become um, part of the world that we're in. So I wanted to, to, you know, keep the brother where I felt like he belonged. So there you go. I love that story. It it sort of parallels with the story behind Eddie Murphy and a vampire in Brooklyn because uh, he actually wanted to do 
a serious horror film mm-hmm. and they in the studios wanted him to do his comedy it's like we, we know you for the comedy eddie but he really wanted to uh dive into horror so it's it's kind of a shame that we really never really got that out of eddie's early career um mm-hmm. so it's i i see that parallel with william's story that you just shared i i also really love the ambiance of this novel from the illustrations and particularly which i found to be quite terrifying at times <laughs> um and the dialogue as i mentioned before very victorian but very witty and biting dialogue so what are some of the key components to making a compelling graphic novel that's going to resonate with readers I, I guess i mentioned a couple but what are some other key components i think it's the nature of well in the illustrations uh jason sean alexander uh who did all aspects of anything visual to the book is incredible. And um, we also do Philadelphia together. So we know each other really well from a, you know, synergy thing. We know what we both do and we try to complement each other's work. But I think the key to creating great horror, I, I was uh, Michael Clark Duncan standing on the movie, the green mile. And there's a long story attached to that, but the log line of it was, I really wanted to meet Stephen King because he was my favorite writer. And I ultimately did, and we had a quick conversation, and he gave me some advice, and his advice was, you know, it's never about the antagonist. It's never about the monster. If you want to grab people, you make it about the protagonist, the people that folks identify with, Um, and if you can create a case of, uh, or sense of empathy, not sympathy, you can grab readers, and so I never forgot that, and I think it's a harder thing because a lot of times when African-American culture is depicted on screen traditionally, I think because we're not necessarily, or we haven't been in the past as much keepers of our stories or, you know, sort of the captains of our stories. Usually folks are going for sympathy and not empathy. And it's a completely different emotion. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. And there are ways that you can feel sorry for a group of people and almost fetishize the idea of who they are to the point where you can feel sorry for anything. You can feel sorry for an animal. You can feel sorry for anything. But when you're creating empathy, you're building a connection. You're building an emotional connection where you're putting yourself in a situation that that person is in and you have to see them as a person. And the easiest way, well, the way that's most effective for me is to create human dynamics, human relationships that are relatable in the sense that um, for Prince Mama Walde, you know, he, his initial goal and the thing that I took away from the original movie was in the first five, 10 minutes, he went to Count Dracula, who was a dignitary in Eastern Europe. He didn't know he was a vampire for help with the slave trade. And he was African royalty. And so this was important to him all the way across the sea to get to this place to, to find help and was quickly betrayed, dismissed. Not only that killed, his wife was killed and he was made into this predator. And so waking up some three, 400 years, not only as this creature of the night, but also looking at what we as a culture have become in a way, I think if you personalize it, you add some narcissistic tendencies to your original goal. Um, you look at it as this was because I failed. I wasn't able to help my people. And as such, this is where we are. And 
as royalty, you're looking at yourself as equal. He's never been a slave. He's never been part of the narrative that um, a lot of times are associated with our stories and history. So he only knows what he knows. And now he's in this place where he's seeing his poverty, he's seeing these issues, he's seeing cops, uh, you know, brutalizing people, he's seeing all of this stuff. But he's also a predator at the same time. And so if I can add that relatable idea of somebody doing you wrong, being betrayed, um, the guilt and shame that's associated for walking into a trap. If I can bring, build human components into that idea, I think all of us have some regrets in life, regardless of, you know, when you get to a certain age outside of childhood, of course, but we have regrets. We have things that we feel uh, where we were slighted or done wrong or whatever. And if I can make those things in Princess Mama Waldi relatable, um, hopefully you connect with that as an audience and you begin to build empathy for him. And in that empathy, when he wants revenge, which is a key component to the story, you sort of build on the idea of wanting him to get revenge. And now you're emotionally invested. And so if you're emotionally invested, then you get to know the other guy too. I build up his opponent uh, in the story as well. So that you get to know him and hopefully build some sense of understanding at least for where he's coming from. So when these two ideas clash, hopefully you see you see yourself in it, or at least you're emotionally connected to it. If you can do that and it feels real, then I think you can create true horror or terror. Ronnie, you know what? Speaking of emotions, if I could just kind of pick one um, image real quickly for you, because I noticed it in Philadelphia as well. And I'm wondering what the conversation is with you and Jason. You know, if you're looking through certain sketches or if you figure out exactly how you want to uh, portray a certain scene. But Tulip in this one, I'm assuming she is um, like a bloodsucker herself. But yes. you come in the scene of, and there's like a, a body hanging upside down and a, I'm assuming she's draining the blood out of the body, but you don't yes. see certain parts of the parts of the body. Like you have that horror right. effect, but you don't see certain parts. And that was done in Philadelphia, I noticed as well. Is that yes. something that you guys work on strategically? Like, hey, I'm going to block this part out, but I still want that blood and gore of it all? Well, it's funny because in this because MGM is involved, I had to make it a PG-13 story. Okay. So the visually, it had to be, you couldn't get as gross as you'd like to be. The Tulip character, though, is sort of, um, I sort of portray or hit at this is, there's a Tarantino-esque world that exists under uh, the world that we live in, our day-to-day -day world that's comprised of vampires. And that there are a lot of different way stations and places all over LA, where vampires exist and go about the business of being a vampire. And so Tulip is one of those individuals. But um, when it comes to the visuals, it's just more of um, a lot of times we have standards and practices and things that we can and can't do. Not so much in Philadelphia. Uh, in Philadelphia, we can go for the throat and cut off heads and cut people in <laughs> half and do all kinds of nasty things. But here we had to sort of pull back on it. But I sort of like that character, and I think it goes back to the question that you asked me a moment ago about relatability, um, that if vampires are organized and they have this world, there's a way that they go about not only conducting business, but surviving, and the tulips of the world are the ways that they go about doing it. 
I just know she was gangster. I was like, now you don't see your auntie and grandma hanging up with somebody like drinking the blood. And I don't know if she was in the kitchen or what, but I was like, man. But yeah, yeah. you're right. I mean, those images grab you. Um, you know, and even if you have to make it PG-13, I mean, that's still going to stick in people's heads to kind of get the story across. And I just think it's fantastic how you added these little nuances to Blackula that weren't yeah. there before and make us think about it differently. Like you said, slave, throwing them a slave trade. So that's, yeah. that's a whole other different dynamic. Well, trying to update it means that you have to you have to look at the entirety of our existence, whereas I think in the black exploitation movies, you dealt with it for like the first five, 10 minutes. And then by the time he got to Crenshaw, he was just biting people, you know, yeah. and going to the club. Um, after that, it re really wasn't a whole lot to the movie. I mean, it was fun for its time. And I think it was one of those gateway movies that one of the bridges to what you see now with the Jordan Peele movies and other, you know, black horror films that are more sophisticated or evolved. I think Blackula is a step in that direction of getting there. Um, so I wanted to update him to feel almost like it was modern. What would it be if he came back today? And speaking of coming back, you're not stopping with Blackula, right? You got Monarch coming out. And just just the whole like just dope groove that Zombie Love Studios is in right now. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about your upcoming projects, but just owning a comic studio, you know, just what has that process been like for you? Uh, a lot more expensive than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, a lot more. I thought it was just comic books. Like, you know, this should be easy. Um you know, uh, Kevin Grievous, the great Kevin Grievous, uh, he does a great book called Bass Reeves that I recommend to everyone. And he, um, I was asking him one time as a self-publisher, like, how do you do this? And he told me how he went about doing it. And I was like, okay, I have a vision for this thing that I want to do. And I want to do it in a very, very specific way. Like, you know, there's so many black superheroes now. Marvel and DC have theirs and Milestone does a great job with the stuff that they do. And I wanted to do stories that were like different. I wanted to do more adult, like what Vertigo used to do, but more for the culture and mm -hmm. stories that were layered in suspense and horror and, um, you know, sometimes drama and thrillers. But I wanted to do them in such a sophisticated way that each book felt like um, like a work of art. Like it wasn't just a regular floppy comic book, that it was something that ultimately you'd want to put on your shelf. And really biting off Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Like I collect all of those books virtually in every iteration that they come out. And so um, when it came to Zombie Love, I wanted Blackula because it was a recognizable title. And it was something that I was connected to and I felt like I had this vampire thing. So I wanted to to do that. But in the stories that we have that are coming, there's another story, Florence and Normandy, that uh, I, the story is by me and Exhibit, um, the rapper actor Exhibit. And um, it's about a uh, basically a monster attack on the corner of Florence and Normandy just breaks out one day. I can't get a plot away. But, um, okay. you know, it's a fun story. It's closer to a YA story, young adult story. Um, I have a serial killer story that's set in the 1920s called The Butcher of Black Bottom. Um, there's another story. I have a book with, I can't tell that one yet. Uh, <laughs> let me look to my board. Oh, um, man, we're not going to get the uh, exclusive. I <laughs> wish I could give you the exclusive. I've got a ghost story <laughs> called Crownsville that's based on a black mental, that's set in a black mental asylum. 
um, right outside of where I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, called Crownsville. It's based on a real place. And I went and did research and all the people that worked there told me of the places that were haunted and the places they wouldn't go. Um, and that's a painted book. I'm very proud of that. And then we produced the image books as well. Philadelphia, Nita Hall's Nightmare Blog, and Monarch. And so um, it's a lot of books. It's a lot of work, uh, but it's it's rewarding work. You know, it's not the same as what I do in TV and film, but it's rewarding in its way. And um, really, really enjoy it at the end of the day. It's nothing like having a new book come out. Um, it really feels good. Probably like, you know, giving birth. <laughs> something imagine. like that something yeah, like that yeah. not the the part where you send the kid to school for the first time once it's all cleaned <laughs> up and can talk but not the you know not the hard part i reading the book I, all i could think of is how can we adapt this into a tv series or a film yeah. or even animated because yeah. the the illustrations just pop off of the page and would make for a great animated series uh, so I fingers crossed that that happens in the near future, but you've, you know, you're not unfamiliar with projects that have gone from comic to screen. I wanted to ask about the series, the Mandalorian season mm -hmm. two is coming out soon. Are you set to write any new issues for that book? I did all of them. Uh, there should be announcing uh, since you jumped it already. I appreciate it. Uh, so you said it, not me. I didn't give it away. I blame you guys. Uh, yeah, I did all of season two of uh, Mandalorian, and hopefully there'll be a season three. It's um, it's a fun gig. It's a tough gig because uh, you've got to take an hour's worth of material and crunch it down into thirty pages. Um, and still make it feel like the thing that was um, you experienced on Disney Plus. So that's not the easiest thing. But then again, a lot of the work is already done because they've told, you know, the story and have to stay pretty close to what they've done. But um, I love being part of the Star Wars universe. I mean, I did Lando, uh, Double or Nothing, and an IG-88 story for The War of the Bounty Hunters. So anytime they ask me to do anything in the Star Wars space, it's like being able to do different types of stuff I started with superhero books and then, um, you know, horror and mystery and different types of things. And being able to jump around is kind of cool. So just to be clear, you're, the books that are all done, are they in alignment with season three or is it all of just season two that's done? Season two. Yeah, yeah, season yeah. Two. Season two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Season so they, two. I haven't, no one's talked to me about season three. I think the way that it works is it's based on how well they do. Ah. And then they decide whether or not, I don't know that for sure, but it seems like success is the thing that drives a lot of, um, you know, the ancillary stuff that they do from the shows. I'm certain that you'll be writing for season three. Uh, hope no so. doubt about that. Hope so, hope so. <laughs> the fun gig. Yeah. Well, we're fans too of another series that you are a part of on the TV side, Winning Time. Uh, and I've read that season two will pick up from where season one left off. So what can you share with us of what we can expect to see out of the sophomore season of that show? Uh, a lot more. Um, I think an evolution in all of the characters, because, you know, if you gotten to the end of season one, we've won now. We have a championship. And what's what does success do to a team? You know, it changes the dynamic and how so and, you know, 
how we handle success has a lot to do with um, how successful we'll be in the future, you know, especially when you're working with other people. And so a lot more intimate stories, um, a lot more detail, a lot more fun. Um, of course, I can't give it away, but I think I'm very proud of what we've done for season two and um, should be dropping in this summer, I think. I was wondering, is there a release date yet? I don't know, but I've heard like June someplace around then, but I haven't heard an official anything. But yeah. Ooh. All right. Okay. Oh, we'll another release date. Is Blackula, when is Blackula dropping? Or is it already um, out? Black is already out. The, it came oh, in comic shops on the 17th of January and then the okay. 31st, it was available on Amazon. And um, uh, yeah, I've been. I see people pop up with their picture and holding the book. And that's a great I feeling. I see. Too. I love it. Yeah, if you ever go, if you ever look on my social media, you'll see people holding the Blackula book. And it's like, you know, when you sit up all night, and you're working on a thing. And so it's truly a labor of love. And you see people really appreciating it. It's a great feeling. And you don't just have anybody. I mean, he's got like Ice Cube up there. <laughs> I'm <laughs> fortunate to work with some folks. Just um, Yeah. I'm a lucky man. Uh, uh, <laughs> lucky man. Well, listen, I we are very lucky to have had the opportunity to speak with you today here on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. This is such a great book. Please, those of you guys that are listening, pick up this book. It is so, so good. Uh, first of all, do you ever sleep, Rodney? Because I feel like you're just everywhere. Exactly. I do get asked that a lot. Um, I do more at this point. When my parents were this age, they slept, you know, they had, they got a lot more rest and um, I don't, I don't sleep very much at all, but I like it this way. Okay. As long as you know, yeah. you're, you're comfortable in this space, but I you're doing say comfortable, so but I, I do, <laughs> I wouldn't say comfortable, but I'm used to it. Now. You're used, used to it. it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, your I was going to say normal. thank you, but it felt weird. Cause I was like, you should get sleep, but you know, we appreciate all the projects. So yeah, yeah. 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 Well, thank you. It's like um I think I wasted so much time when I was younger that I'm trying to catch up for the time that I wasted. So that could be it too. Oh, well, you are certainly catching up very well. Is there any other projects that you're working on that should be on our radar? I mean, of course you're on like so many, but um I'm doing the Jack Johnson mini series at HBO. Um <laughs> I'm looking to my board. That's what the um is. I'm looking to see what else I'm doing. Um, Jack Johnson is the biggest thing. Um, writing a couple of movies, um, adapting a couple of the things. Uh, Monarch may be option soon, so I may be writing that movie. Um, so yeah, just uh, working on things and trying to get them set up and trying to keep this train moving. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate this book and your your TV works and everything that you are creating in this world and what you're doing for the culture, what you're doing for Black nerds everywhere. We we really appreciate it. Um, so thank you, Rodney, so much for, for coming on our podcast and speaking with us today. You're welcome. I will give you one thing, though, since uh, you did say the exclusive. I will give you one thing. Um, Philadelphia, issue 30 is going to make, on the last page, it's going to be a really surprising hint to a crossover book. 
that Philadelphia is going to cross over with another book outside of the Philadelphia world that is really, really popular. It'll be a big surprise to everyone. So there you go. Oh, wow. Okay. Big Yay. Easter egg. There you go. It's a huge I'm lining up my issues right now to get the it's 30. Huge, Hold on. Yeah, yeah. We're on 20, <laughs> I think 28 comes out this week. So two issues away. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, we're going to be looking for, and it's a book outside of the image comic book imprint, or it's within. <laughs> you, you're like <laughs> you an attorney. Doing, right? You're I like an attorney. It. Yeah, you're like, so yeah. It's become a deposition now. I'm a journalist, um, you know. This is yes, you do. are. You're very good at this. Um, <laughs> let's just, it's a really, really big character and world <laughs> that is combining with the Philadelphia world. Okay. All right. You guys heard it here first. All right. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Rodney, for coming on our show. We really appreciate it. And please do not be a stranger. Come back and yeah. talk anytime to us on your you, next projects. Yeah. Anytime you guys want to talk, I'm ready. All right. Thank you. You take care. All right. Take it easy. Right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye. First of all, my biggest complaint about Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania is uh, not enough quads. <laughs> not <laughs> not enough um i really loved your character in this movie and quaz has a pretty unique ability in the fact that he's a telepath and can read people so if you were gifted with that ability um would you take it no absolutely not no no i i mean if, if anyone's thoughts or anything like mine I don't need to read anyone's thoughts ever, you know, like, <laughs> that, that's no. <laughs> I would agree with you. I, I don't want to have that either. I feel like there's a lot of thoughts out there that I just don't want to know about. Um, what, one of the things I loved about your character as well is you added a lot of levity to the tone of this film. And this film was, I think it was a little bit more serious than the previous Ant-Man films. So Quaz was there to give it some balance. Were you allowed to be as quirky as you wanted to be with the character or was everything that was given to you already on the page? Uh, a lot of it was on the page. Um, and I, I feel like, and it felt, the, the tone felt right. Um, I, I think that this is a person or being that is very much over it. Um, I think that there's there comes a point when you're doing comedy, um, you don't want to put a hat on a hat. Um, you know, it's like the jokes are there. What's the what's actually going on in the scene? Like, let's just honor that. And like, I feel like that's I feel like that that works best. Um, I think that you know, just wanting to be if I wanted to just put extra stuff on it. I think it, I don't know if it would have felt as, I don't know, I think it would have, I don't, I don't know that, it, I, don't, I don't know that in the grand scheme of the whole movie that it would have worked. I think it would have been the thing that would have felt shoehorned. I would have been forcing something. I just didn't want anything to feel forced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it was very organic. It felt very natural and you played it very well. And now that you're officially a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what's been the best part of your experience being attached to this franchise? Oh, getting to go to the premiere was pretty cool. Um, yeah. you know, other than that, everything is normal. You know, it's like, I'm still walking my dog and just like, 
you know, trying to fill my days. So it's like everything is normal. And then you have these days where something, you get to do something really cool. And then you go back to, you know, like warming up lunch in the microwave and walking your dog and binging your shows. It's like, so it's like you know, <laughs> everything else. Yeah, it, it's, um, but yeah, it's like the premiere was pretty great. And um, other than that, everything's the same, so. What what is it? I was actually at the premiere as well. What what was it about the premiere that was great? Is it the seeing the other celebrities there, the other your co-stars, your colleagues, or is it seeing the fans? Because a lot of fans come out there, a lot of them dress up in cosplay. What is it about that experience that you enjoy working at the premiere? It's never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen uh I've I've been at premieres, but you know, the, like they're they're smaller in scale, or you know, it's like a largely like you know TV premieres, which you know it, it that's not you know, it's not meant for a theater, and it's not meant for that experience. It's meant for you to watch it at home, and 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 so that's more of like a it's a it's a it's a celebration, but it's 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 just different. Uh, I think that. This is my first time in a big tent pole, like, you know, big budget <laughs> like this. And so uh, I just, that, I, just everything about it, the atmosphere, the fans, the um, getting to be around these celebrities who I guess I had scenes with also, you know, like that all is mm-hmm. like kind of, I, I just wanted to see what that was. And it was really cool to see it, of, like firsthand, close up and like, on the carpet, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's, that's wild. To me. So now that you've had a dose of being in the comic book universe, whether it's Marvel or another comic book franchise, is there a superhero or a team of heroes that you would like to be in a movie and work on? Uh, nothing really jumps to mind right now. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm always up for it, um, but like, uh, and I also think that since I'm talking about, uh, uh, since I am talking about a Marvel property, I can't probably veer from that, you know? <laughs> like, like, uh, you so, got to stay in the Disney family. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I got to stay, stay there. So, um, so yeah, it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm always open to that. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I, I like this stuff. So, you know, like I'm, I'm a nerd. I like this stuff. It's, it's always exciting to me and to get to be a part of it is great. So I'm, I'm open. Um, and if the right thing comes along and someone approaches me or I get the chance to audition, then I, I will. But, um, you know, I'm certainly not gonna, uh, like, you know, push forward in that way just because it's like or or I'm not like always thinking on that because I'm really just sort of committed to you know what's an interesting character period the the genre doesn't matter what's what's the most interesting character that someone wants me to come and play and I'll I'll come and do that if I'm if it's if it's cool so yeah you mentioned being a nerd have you at all dove into the comics because you know Quaz is a character that's in the comics he's a little bit different in the comics and this character that's been brought to the big screen has been changed a little bit but did you read the comics at all or are familiar with the universe of Ant-Man prior to being on this show or this film I know I knew a little bit about it 
man. Um, but like I, but I, I, I base based most of everything off of the movies because I didn't really chase down the anime comics when I was when I was younger. I, I knew about the character, but I never really went that deep down the rabbit hole about it. And then the quads that I found was the short for Quasar, which is a completely different guy from the dude that I'm playing. And so I was like, oh, well, this ain't, this ain't the same dude. Like, that dude has powers <laughs> from Quantum Bands. My dude is a really jaded telepath. It's like, these are... These are <laughs> so I was like, okay, this can't be the same guy. And then I heard from uh, Jeff and Peyton that this is a wholly original character. Um, and so I was like, okay, all right. And he's he's Quaz, just full stop, not Quaz, short for Quasar. So I was like, all right, well, that's, so I get to, I get to do whatever I want with this dude. And I get to make him as jaded as, uh, as anybody. And so like, that's, 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 that's what I did. I didn't really go down the comic rabbit hole just because it was, it was like, oh, these are, these guys are completely different. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm just curious, like for you as a performer, as an actor, and I always love to ask actors these questions when it comes to genre between comedy and drama, what is more challenging for you? Because you've got a lot of versatility and range. You've been in projects like the Underground Railroad. And then we talked to you before about the resort and now this film. So is there a challenge between doing comedy as opposed to drama or is it a different sort of beast depending on like what the project is? Uh, you know, this is, this is a really, it's a really big question, but I think that like when it comes to comedy, there are, there's a desired result, which makes it a comedy, right? Like it's like, you gotta laugh, uh, you know, and, and so like, there is like a different kind of tightrope you're walking uh, when it comes to, to doing comedy. Um, drama, there's like a much wider range of responses which still register as a successful response to whatever work you're doing. So, you know, like I, I think that it really just depends on the, the project. I don't, I don't necessarily look at something as like, oh, this is a comedy. Therefore, I'm going to make these physical and vocal changes uh, because of what this thing is being classified as. I just like approach the character as the character. And mm -hmm. if something happens to be funny, it's funny. And if it's not, it's not. But I just never want to be in a place where I'm relying too much on trying to play the idea of what a thing is or play the tone of something. It's like, that's, that's for other people to sort of figure out. Like, I'm just trying to be present in the scene. And if something funny happens, great. If something happens that makes you cry, also great. Um, but, uh, but just never, and I, you know, I, 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 that's, that's how I'm thinking about it. And the other thing is when it comes to comedy, it's easy. I find that sometimes it's easy for me to start begging for a laugh. And I have to watch out for that impulse because when people feel you begging, they they don't want to give you the thing you're begging for, which is a laugh, <laughs> you know. Like, and so I um, and so that's something. That's one thing in comedy that I'm always sort of on the lookout for myself. Is is like, am I begging? Am I trying to force this, or am I just being a 
a person and trying to let this thing sort of unfold organically and let the chips fall where they may. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 basically that's basically it. I really don't look at things genre wise and decide how I'm going to approach the thing. It's sort of like what's happening in the scene, what's the character, and you know, what are we gonna, how are we gonna do this in a way that feels grounded and and surprising. Yeah, I, I love that about your work. Your your comedy always feels very organic and it never feels heavy handed at all. You just give a very solid delivery in your performances. And I just appreciate that. That's why I'm like, we need more quas. <laughs> uh, my my last question for you is what what's next for you? I mean, you, you've just done so much and you've got this big film that's right now out in theaters, but what what's next on your plate? Uh, next up, I actually have, uh, I, I just finished a project. Uh, it's a limited series for Netflix called uh, A Man in Full. Um, it was uh, it's produced by David E. Kelly, who actually wrote a lot of the scripts, and uh, Regina King, and uh, Jeff Daniels is in it, Diane Lane, Tom Pelfrey, and Amel Amin, and Jerrica Hinton, and like all these, like all these heavy hitters that I've been watching for years. Uh, I mean, that's literally just a small snippet. There's like tons of other heavy hitters, uh, and uh, I'm I'm, I'm I'm in that and I'm really excited for folks to, to see that. And then um, and I, uh, the next project that I'm gonna be doing though is a play actually in New York um, at the Roundabout Theater off Broadway. Um, it's a play called Primary Trust by, sorry, Primary Trust by Ebony Booth. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about that one. Well, we're excited for you and what's coming up next in your career. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. And hopefully we will see Quaz in another Marvel property soon. <laughs> thank you, William. Take right. care. Right, you take Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.